We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, And I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by BetOnline.ag. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius. Uh, today we're going to talk about um, what I believe to be the single most important change to basketball in terms of the rules in my lifetime. And that is in prior to the 2001-2002 season, the league changed their illegal defense rule, eliminating it and replacing it with the defensive three seconds rule. And what that meant was under the previous rules, off-ball defenders had to stay within arm's distance-ish of their player or to go double-team on the ball. They could not double-team off of the ball. They could not play zone off of the ball. Um, they uh, And that extended out to the three-point line. So um, let's talk about how it used to be first for those who either uh, aren't old enough to know or remember or it's been a while since they watched that that kind of basketball what what was the impact like what was basketball like back then before the illegal defense rule was eliminated i mean 
So there was a lot of stuff with this too, right? So when you talk about what was basketball like back then before with the old illegal defense rule, I, I think this sort of went hand in hand with the lack of emphasis on three-point shooting, right? And so, and and I actually think that these two things sort of went hand in hand. And w- this is something we can get into the pod a little bit later in terms of the rule chain changes and the domino effect that that happens. But with the old illegal defense rule, you could sort of artificially create spacing. Um, you could send whoever you wanted sort of out beyond the three-point line or hovering around the three-point line and individual defenders who were guarding that that player were sort of had to pay attention to him and, and, and sort of know where he was at any given time. Because let's say I'm guarding you, Pete, and mm-hmm. you're sort of standing in the short corner area around the baseline that 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 area where Kobe hit many a game winner and many a fade away jumpers. Yeah, right? so if if you don't know the short corner, that's about halfway between where the lane is and the three-point line. Roughly. Exactly. So yeah. let's say that you were standing right there and you're a power forward and I'm AC Green and I'm defending you. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know why I'm AC Green. Maybe I have have (laughs) shiny hair today. So you decide if I just start to pay attention way too much to the ball and I'm not looking at where where you're at, you start to lurk Mm -hmm. away from me. I start to back up to the three-point line, even though I can't shoot. Even though you can't shoot, you are not a stretch power forward in 1983. You're – I won't make you – a Celtic or anything. Think of whatever Jesus. sort of. You're Michael Cage. Okay. And, I like that. I have AC Green. Nice Jerry Curl going on. Yeah. Right? Both Speaking of us, good right? hair. Good hair. Yeah. yeah we got yeah. good hair going on. Yeah. It, yeah. it is a hair off. So if you lurk out behind the three point line and I'm watching the ball, then suddenly I'm in no man's land and I could easily get called for illegal defense. Mm-hmm. And what happened when I would get called for illegal defense, Pete. It's a technical foul, one free throw, and we keep the ball, reset of the shot clock. That's right. So that's a pretty damning defensive mistake to get mm-hmm. called for illegal defense. And and so the result of that was often a bunch of artificial spacing for the offensive team. And mm-hmm. post play thrived. Yeah, like to, if I could jump in, what would what teams would often do was they would cluster three guys on the on one side of the court, like your three worst offensive players, and it would be a lot of two man game, right? So it would be like Magic and Kareem on one side, and say Worthy's not in the game or something, and then it's like right, like Kurt Rambis and uh, you know Byron might come off a screen maybe, right? But uh, and and you know. Pick your pick your fifth guy, right? But so, somebody who's not a three point threat, and they're all kind of clustered together while Magic and Cream would be doing their thing. And this type of two man game was very prominent around the league. We see two man game now as being largely pick and roll based, but back then it was we're just going to space the floor and make it kind of this two on two game, and between our best players and creating all this space for them and that was difficult to defend so you start double teaming and then you can start getting benefits off of that 
that happened in the 80s. Defenses started to kind of catch up to that and uh, and would send doubles and then would... That gives you more freedom on the weak side to... Like, you didn't have to stay attached to the same guy. You just had to be within arm's distance of an offensive player and you couldn't double team a guy, right? So when you doubled, when you did a hard double, it would be three on two on the weak side. And those two defenders, like, okay, you check cutter, I'll check, you know, uh, anybody right. trying to flash middle or, you know, or, or a three-point shooter, however they wanted to defend it. Um, and that's when we saw those scores start going down in the 90s, right? Is that yeah. defenses became more and more sophisticated on how they handled that. And I would add, too, that the lack of emphasis of three-point shooting at that time often meant that even good perimeter shooters were not camping out behind the three-point arc when they were when they were on the weak side, right? Mm-hmm. They might be at they might be spotting up at 20 feet or 18 mm-hmm. feet. And so the spacing often looked really shrunk on well on the weak side. And it made that zoning up of the weak side when you did send double teams almost easier to work with when you're on that backside because you're not closing to 23 or 24 or 25 feet the way that Mm -hmm. you are in today's NBA. You were closing out to 18 feet or 20 feet. And maybe if there was a Dale Ellis or a Chuck Person Um, or a Hersey Hawkins or... Ricky Pierce. All them dudes were Sonics, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Yes, right, right. If Uh if you were one of those guys, then maybe you were camped out behind the three-point line. And even back then, there were specialists, right? Like, oh, Craig Mm -hmm. Hodges or all of those guys that were in the three-point contest. Trent Tucker, yeah. Trent Tucker, another name, right? We are dating ourselves here, but this is great. Yes, yes. So if you were one of those guys, you would camp out behind the three-point line, and it would make those rotations harder. And and it was one of the reasons why those guys actually thrived in the league back then. It was because those rotations were hard, and guys were not used to closing out to that distance. And so a lot of shots that they got were open. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's hard to pick apart what... uh, is what illegal defense was responsible for versus what, uh, like, a lack of understanding of analytics and good shots, right? Like, even back when we were young, you know, coaches would always say and announcers would always say, like, the that three-pointer with your foot on the line is the worst shot in the game, right? Like, that's, that's been a, a, a trope as long as I've been alive. What wasn't understood, of course, was the notion that the really – pretty much anywhere from like three or four feet away from the basket to the three-point line. The three the three was a better shot, right? We were a long way away from that. And I, I really don't think that that started progressing until the late 2000s um, and, uh, or, or even earlier, maybe, you know, mid-2000s with D'Antoni and whatnot. So uh, that made it all the easier. And again, those we saw that reduction in points in the 90s. So what, what happened? That, so, so yeah, we have the 80s. Scoring levels are at about the same level that they are now. Then we get to the 90s and we see, you know, like I just rewatched the 98 finals and like these games, bro, there was one a finals game, Utah scored 54 points in that game. That that's wasn't like a normal. College score. That's like a yeah. college score. Yeah, man. And mo- a lot of these games were in the 70s, in the 80s. 
Um, and and we saw that for quite a stretch uh, in the NBA. It's really only been over the last 10 years with the analytics revolution, which, with the idea that shots at the rim, catch-and-shoot threes, and free throws are really the best way that you can get points, and offenses have really changed around that idea. Um, what... What what it speak speak to that intermediate era before that the rule change in two thousand one when you know the style of basketball started changing from the eighties. Yeah, so the nineties were an interesting time for basketball because everyone sort of fashioned themselves as as a bit of a physical team. Like mm. the best teams in the league were defensive teams first and foremost. Um even those Bulls teams with especially that second three-peat run, I mean, Jordan and Pippen and Rodman and Ron Harper, it was all of this, like, size and physical toughness that they were offering. Those Riley's Knicks teams, um, those Riley's then Heat teams, and then those Knicks teams continued under Jeff Van Gundy. A lot of the best teams in the league during that time were sort of grinded out defensive teams or they played at a pace that was that was very much slowed slowed down and played into the hands of that physical style like those I wouldn't say that those jazz teams were necessarily great defensive teams but they were physical teams and they would foul you and they would maul you on both sides of the ball right like they'd set a bunch of hard sometimes illegal screens they would clutch and hold defensively I remember one of the reasons why as a Lakers fan I I strongly disliked those jazz teams was because they played under the premise that almost like in football how you can't call holding on on every every play play, right like you couldn't the jazz played a style where Jerry Sloan clearly thought you can't call a foul on every single play like you just can't and so um <laughs> a lot of those freedom of movement fouls that we see now bro the screens the that john stockton used to set man like stockton's used to set the dirtiest freaking screens man do you remember the screen that julius randall set on gordon hayward to <laughs> in kobe's last kobe game uh, yeah yeah right for that <laughs> yeah. last game winning shot that, that was basically yeah all screens. That was John Stockton's career. No, that was especially Stockton, and he was small enough to where it was like, oh, what, me? Like, what? Did I, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, I could go on. But but the point I was making, too, about those freedom of movement fouls that we see now where you can't really bump cutters, you, you can't mm-hmm. impede movement when guys are moving through the lane. Um, all that stuff is born out of the fact that those rules were different back in the 90s, or at least they were called differently, right? And, and so you would be able to bump a cutter off off of a spot. If there was a cross screen that was set from lane from lane line to lane line, which was a common action back back in the 90s in order to free to free post players. And it often was a guard who would go and set that screen on on that big man it would be the defensive guard who was guarding the player or who was defending them who was defending the player who went to go set set that screen he would often just stand right in the way of mm-hmm. that big man and if that mm-hmm. big man trucked him the big man might be called for a foul sure. whereas in today's nba 
if you impede that big man come coming across the lane, that's a foul on you. And yeah, that was a, like as a coach, you always uh, teach that to like check cutters, right? Like if you're in a zone or if you're even if you're in man to man, right? Like if you can drop down and put a little forearm in his ribs, like that's what you're supposed to do. That was taught for years and years. No, it's how it's how I grew up playing the game. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, people probably still look at me now. If I were to go out there and play pickup now, I would probably still be playing that because it was just ingrained in my head that this is how you play, right? Like there's there is a certain amount of of physicality you play with defensively in order to muck up the game a little mm-hmm. bit, and, and that was the essence of '90s basketball, and and it came off of. This wonderful era, I feel like, of 80s basketball where the pace was so much faster and while there was a lot of physicality in that game as well, the 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 top teams, the Lakers, the Celtics, um, even the 76ers, some of those Rockets teams, they would, even though they played post-oriented basketball offensively, mostly through their big men like Moses Malone and Kareem and then Ralph Sampson and Hakeem, those those teams could still get out and run. They would play in the fast break. They would play some, some open court basketball. And it was a good brand of basketball to watch overall, especially when the best team in the league for that decade was basically our team. The Lakers. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I think we might we might remember it less fondly if we were not Laker fans. Uh, but thank God we are. Uh, yes. Let's take it. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about the uh, 2001 rule change and kind of what happened afterward. With currently no NBA, NHL or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. If you're missing the NFL, no problem. Bet Online has live, daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Go to betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your welcome bonus. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. All right, so again, in 2001, this is uh, right before the Lakers' last championship of their three-peat. The league eliminates the illegal defense rule. Uh, But I've always thought, um, like the three-point line is an example of this, is when a major rule change happens in the NBA, that doesn't always mean that teams adapt to it right mm-hmm. away, right? Like they understand how to use it. The three-point line was kind of this novelty for for several years of its existence. And then you'd have a couple guys popping up here and there. And now, you know, I I think it's been like 20 straight years or, or you know, even more where three-point attempts have increased from the year before. Uh, and so, but for the first bit of it, it wasn't really that. I would argue that something similar happened with the elimination of the illegal defense rule is that even though it was gone, I believe that the first team to really use it well was the 2008 Boston Celtics with Tom Thibodeau and Kevin Garnett 
the amoeba defense, uh, the Lakers' strong side zone. Uh, yeah. Kurt Rambis led that um, in in 2009. That that was first off. Do you agree with that? And what did those like the Thibodeau defense, the the Lakers' strong side zone? How did that change? How did that affect how basketball was played? No, and so I agree. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Like I was just nodding my head because I I could already tell where you were going with that. Um, those early Celtics teams with Tom Thibodeau as the defensive coordinator under Doc Rivers, they were the first team to sort of really start to shrink the floor on the strong side, the ball side, that that made it so that the best course of action was to either swing the ball quickly or effectively skip the ball across the court with sort of cross-court passes, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, that defense gave those Lakers fits in 2008 during the finals. And it was such a good defensive tactic that the Lakers and Kurt Rambis almost essentially started to copy it, right? Sure, like, sure. Um, they used very similar principles, but but leveraged a little bit more of the the quickness and length that the Lakers had at their disposal versus um, some of the physicality that those Celtics teams had. Right? The Lakers also had like, they had sh- more shot blocking than like those Celtics teams were physical, but we had like twin towers with Powell and Bynum. And then we could go to this totally different look with Lamar and, and Powell. Right. And like their co- coverages could be different than if Bynum was on the floor. So yeah, it's, it's also like very big centric, like what your bigs are capable of doing. No, exactly right. And, and so one of the things that, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Celtics love to those Celtics teams love to ice ball screens. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so they they love to force the ball baseline, and they love to have weak side defenders lurking, right? And and so one of the classic examples of how most offenses worked, and this was a triangle offense work worked like this as well, is you might have a post entry. And then a speed cut or a split cut, depending on who, on how many players were on the strong, strong side, they would cut off, off of the post and they would clear a side. And mm-hmm. it would essentially create a mid post or a post isolation, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever that, one thing that the Celtics did effectively is when you would make a post entry and then cut off of the post, the guard would follow but then he would linger and he would linger in the paint and then sort of show strong side zone action that Mm -hmm. if you're going to drive the ball then you're going to see you're going to see a defender early right Mm -hmm. and a lot of it was to discourage a drive at all to make Mm -hmm. a defend to make the offensive player want want to shoot that mid-range jump shot or for that player to pass Right. Because you're running a mid post isolation typically for your best offensive player. You're not throwing the ball to Kendrick Perkins and saying, go get me a bucket. Go clear out a side. Yeah. Right. They're throwing the ball to Kobe Bryant. Or if you're even Boston, you're throwing that ball to Paul Pierce. Carmelo Anthony got those touches. Carmelo Anthony, Tracy McGrady. Right. A lot of mid post wings. That style of play is really not around as much anymore. No, it's not. Well, I, I, I mean, the power wing. Is it's not gone, but it's, it's not, not gone. Yeah. But the 
best the thing is is that there are fewer of those players who are who are effective scoring from that spot on the floor in general. And I think part of that is because that part of the game is being de-emphasized, right? right? But if you were to talk about the three or four best power wings in the league, they all still thrive in sure. in that area. LeBron Kawhi, James, LeBron, Ka- mm-hmm. Kawhi, uh, Kevin Durant. Even yeah. Giannis can thrive from that position, mostly as a fa- as a turn and face and driving option, not necessarily mm-hmm. as a like jab no, jumper right. guy. He's not a triple threat guy. Yeah. Yes, he's not. But I mean, he will get you in triple threat. It's just that he'll then just body you and then explode, and then he, and then right. he's at the rim right. with like a half a step. He's yep. he's at the rim. But getting back to to some of those strong side zone principles. A lot of it was just crowding the strong side with bodies and arms and making sure that if anyone was going, if the man with the ball was going to penetrate there, he was going to run into extra defenders, oftentimes size, right? Right. If I can jump in real quick, just if people aren't aware, like uh, strong side means the side of the court that the ball is on, right? So teams were putting more one more guy on the side of the court like so you remember Kobe on the on the wing which is like the free throw line extended right kind of where the three point line turns uh and goes toward the corner and goes into a straight line kind of in that area but like you know 18 20 feet away right so anyway but the strong side uh if you're not aware of the term is just the side of the court that the ball's on so if that's confusing hopefully that clears that up anyway conti- yeah. continue yeah and and, and so to to sort of contrast that versus the defenses that we were talking about from the 90s, in, in the 90s, you would have to come and double-team the ball hard, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you would need to actually have two defenders on, well, on the basketball, and that made your passing reads easier, right? With the implementation of zone defenses and a defense of three seconds, that player did not have to come and commit a full a full on double team. He could linger around, and as long as he was not in the painted area for three seconds or longer consecutively, then he was okay to just continue to linger in. Well, 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 in that space, and it created these zone looks on on the weak side side of the floor that were very hard to dissect back in 2007, 2008, and, and even up until 2010, 2011. It really did take a few years for offenses to start to catch up and figure out the best way to attack these well, well these types of schemes. Yeah, and I, I would argue that even even into today's game, we see a lot of that. Now, what those schemes, the you know, it it makes intuitive sense, right? You move one more body over to the side of the court that the ball's on. If you can get the ball from one that side of the court to the other side of the court, you've got an advantage, right? So uh, those are those types of zones are really vulnerable to skip passes and the things that help facilitate skip passes, right? So pin screens, uh, meaning that like, oh, you're gonna you're going to 
shift a little bit over to the side of the uh, court where the ball is. Well, we're going to set screens on you to pin you there. Like, good, stay there. And then we're going to throw the ball over the top with a guy like LeBron, ideally, right? And now we've got a shooter that's wide open as a result of that, right? So it, it was part and parcel to the growth of the importance of the three-point line, not just further understanding that, like, yeah, actually a it being three points versus two points is like 50% more, and that's a lot. It Beyond that, it also went to the uh, to adjusting to how do we still get the impact, the offensive impact of our dominant wings, right, while, uh, but doing it in a different way. Like, these guys are drawing extra attention. How do we maximize that to take advantage of that? Like, you know, I was watching the the... A series in 2010 I did that whole series for The Athletic and we didn't really know how to do that yet and part of it was personnel right like the Celtics just didn't guard Ron Artest for pretty much the whole series behind the three-point line and sent a lot of extra help that way right like part of that is you can't have really in today's game Ron Artest and Powell and Bynum in the front court uh in terms of three-point shooting right like it's just you got to have you pretty much at least four guys who are credible three-point threats and with Powell and Bynum at the time neither of them were and our test was below average at that point of his career so that became a huge liability for the Lakers offensively but uh so that started to shift the like what do I need from my small forward it became like oh like a small forward who couldn't shoot like you can't really play him that much. And then it became a power forward that can't shoot. You can't really play him that much. And now a lot of times, traditional fives are having a hard time staying on the floor in crunch time and in, in bigger moments. So, yeah, I think that like that's kind of the progression is the elimination of the illegal defense rule led to zone strong side zone type action in the amoeba defense that were geared toward like, the other team's got this one dude that's really incredible. We've got to limit him, but if we double-team him, that's easy, like, wide-open jumpers for other guys. How do we get the best of both worlds, right? So that's the next step, and then scoring drops, and you get those 83-79 to 79 games again like we did in the 90s. Then personnel starts changing to both in terms of understanding analytics, but also in response to this, like, oh, well, if we've got somebody on the weak side who can catch and let it fly, we're going to take advantage of that. No, so I want to jump in on that point there specifically with the determination that teams need more shooting that's on the floor. We talked about this earlier in the pod, but with the old illegal defense rule, you could manufacture spacing simply by by player positioning, right? Mm-hmm. And in today's NBA, you can only manufacture spacing by actually having credible threats behind the mm-hmm. floor. And, and it's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing, right? Like the way that you're explain, explaining it, I'm nodding my head and, and agreeing with that. And I do think that finding more shooting to put on the floor – very much is a response to the fact that that teams were shrinking the floor on on off against so defensive teams were shrinking the floor against an offensive team's best players all of the time and it was limiting the amount of quality shots that a team was going to get from its best players because it was effectively neutering them and and 
limiting their ability to get to spots on the floor where those players could get the highest percentage shots, right? Like usually at like right at the basket because that's what the best players in the world do. They score at the rim, um, which is one of the reasons why centers were always so prized, right? Mm-hmm. Dating back in throughout the history of the league because guess what? When you're tall, it helps you put the ball in the basket very close to the basket. And that's the mm-hmm. point of the damn game. <laughs> Fast forward, though, and teams were no longer able to manufacture that spacing simply by placing players in these designated spots on, on the floor. They actually needed a credible threat there. And it's sort of a chicken in the egg, right? Like, we're going to hurt you by making more three-pointers if you if you don't respect those shooters. But if you respect those shooters, guess what? I've now created the same spacing that we were talking about teams had in the 1980s, right? Because you are now no longer able to crowd the best wing players by showing strong side zone action as often, right? Because if you're defending LeBron James, and we saw this as Lakers fans, especially this year in comparison to last year, right? Like, Mm -hmm. really, that's the only comparison that you need to make in terms of understanding this this concept effectively is when last year's Lakers were trying to – put LeBron in the mid post and space the floor with Lance Stevenson and Lonzo Ball and Rajon Rondo and Brandon Ingram, right? Guys who were not taking and making three three pointers at at a high rate. Guess what? That strong sign zone look stayed forever and sometimes full on double teams were coming be, be, just just because Opposing coaches were not fearful of the shooters that, that the Lakers had had on the floor. Fast forward to this year, and it's you you know lineups with Danny Green and KCP, and and those guys are effectively spacing the floor for LeBron James, and, and that meant more often coaches were in this this do I or don't I position of doubling or or even showing the types of strong side looks that a passer of the caliber that LeBron is would just defeat with with skip passes right right over the top with any sort of effective weak side screen action and mm-hmm. and that is the essence of today's game right and and that's how you beat those those actions today but it's interesting because Without the shooting, none of it works, right? Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's the point that you were making that, that I feel like is, is it that is it that it's so important that you need the shooters? This is what I wanted to ask you. It, like, are there ways to scheme this without the shooters that, that you could imagine? Or, or is it really just a zero-sum sum game? You, like, you need the shoe shooters now, and, and that's the only way to do it. Yeah, I mean, you need the shooters, and that's the only way to do it. You can hide one guy um, by having him as the screen setter, especially. Um, I think of guys like Draymond and Ben Simmons, especially Ben Simmons, right, where having um, 
having Simmons either in in the corner and diving from there or, or setting screens from there or having him as the ball screener or setting screens uh, off the ball. Like if guys play way off of them and you have Ben Simmons screening for a, a quality shooter, then if he makes contact on that screen, the guy who's playing off of him is not going to be able to help on that shooter, right? So that's a way to pull a guy out of the paint when he's defending Ben Simmons, even though Ben Simmons himself is not much of a shooter. Um, but it, it's almost one of those, like, if you can't get it from one guy, you need to have another guy who's not just like a, oh, he's a good shooter, like, he'll catch and shoot 39%, but like, a, holy crap, that's Clay Thompson coming off the screen, like, red alert, red alert, we have to defend this, right? So if you're going to have guys like that that can't shoot, you need to make up for that even more so in someone else. So I, I think, you know, Pat Riley said in the late 80s that we were going uh, you know, in, in 25 years, I think he said uh, everyone was going to be six nine and they able to dribble, pass, and shoot. And uh, that was it. We're not all the way there. Uh, and we may not be for a long time, but it's fairly prophetic. Uh, and so that leads me to that kind of prediction of the future leads me to kind of where we're going next. For me, this season was the most interesting defensive season that I can remember. Uh, there was way more zone, way yeah. more 2-3, two, 1-2-2, two, two, the stuff that teams were doing to Harden, right, where they were doubling him in half court. Uh, I think Nick Nurse does really, really cool stuff on the defensive end. They were doing some diamond press. Like, this gets me. Like, one thing I love about the high school game is that, like, pressing and half court traps and stuff that you can get it to work, right? So it's, from a coaching perspective, it's a lot more, there's just a lot more on the menu that you can choose from. And I've always wondered, like, the it's been the thought that in the NBA for years and years, they're too good of shooters, you can't play zone. And I was like, I'd love to see them try. Like, maybe it's not something you could do 90% of the time in the way that you do with a man-to-man defense. But I, I thought, you know, and, and the numbers back this up, um, you know, a lot of teams were executing their zones really well. And I'm just curious to see kind of where do you think the application of this rule and what the latest, uh, the next kind of evolution of it will be. No, I definitely think we're going to see more zone. I also think that it's interesting as the analytics get better and as teams get smarter in terms of targeting and targeting specific players and figuring out where their weaknesses are as shooters, right? Be, be, because a 40% three-point shoe shooter often does not mean he shoots 40% from everywhere. Right. Right. Like, mm-hmm. Right. He right. might shoot. He might shoot 42 or 43 percent from the corners. And he's a high volume corner three point shoe shooter. And he shoots 36 percent on lower volume from above the break. Right. And so as you were talking about more zone zone defense and and the idea that teams um, that NBA players are too good a shooter to play zone against. Right. Well, what flies in the face of some of that is what like Milwaukee did this year as a defensive team. Now they didn't play a lot of zone. In fact, they barely played any zone zone at all. They basically played a traditional man to man scheme with drop coverage and, and, and sort of soft coverage at the point point of attack with their big men while their guard tried to fight over the top of screens and Milwaukee surrendered a ton of, of three pointers, man. Like, I don't know if it was the 
most in the league, but they were up there in terms of most surrendered threes. Mm-hmm. A- and they were the best defensive team in the league in terms of defense in terms of defensive efficiency by a by a mile, right? Mm-hmm. Like by two or three points per one hundred possessions, which which is a lot in terms of right. defensive efficiency. And so, I'll be very interested in seeing how defenses evolve to surrender even more above the break threes to the types of shoe shooters who are not necessarily effective at shooting from that spot. You you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you though is do you envision these rule changes or any other additional rule like rule changes like in the next 10 to 15 years? Like it seems like every every 20 or 25 years we start to see like like tweaks within how the game is called or, or full-on rule changes, right? Like the elimination of the hand check, the implementation of zone zone defense, the introduction of the three-point line. That there there's always something and after a while even this style of basketball that a lot of people love will start to get stale. And, sure. And, I would argue and, it already is, honestly. Yeah, and, and we're already starting, like, starting to see like stylistic pushback, right? Like all teams, they just play play the same, which isn't necessarily true. They play a, a, a lot of teams play differently, but the end result in terms of shot quality and, and, mm-hmm. and the types of shots that they're taking are the same. So, do you envision any rule changes come coming? And and if not, what would you like recommend? So I I don't envision major rule changes anytime soon, but I would like them. And uh, I actually really I really enjoyed this conversation, and I would like to do this as our next podcast. Ah, yeah. Uh, the Ease it up. the NBA needs to make the mid range a, a viable option again. Uh, we have lost some of the beauty of the sport in the technical proficiency that's required for triple threat skills, which is a triple threat is when you catch the ball and you still have your dribble alive, right? You haven't started to dribble yet. And, you know, you put the ball down right around your hip. And from there, you can raise up for your jumper. You can attack off of the drive or you're in good position to pass. Uh, That's why they call it triple threat. There are three different things you can do from that position. And, you know, rewatching a lot of Michael Jordan's, uh, games for you know a couple pieces i've worked on for the athletic and watching kobe over seven games in 2010 guys like mellow like the mid-range shot is not an efficient shot because going from two points to three points on a shot is really severe right like it's 50 percent more and you have to shoot you know like what they shoot 30 League shoots 36-ish percent, 35.5 percent mm-hmm. from three. So in order for that to make sense from two, you got to make it 54 percent of the time. Yeah. Well, they're like they're like three guys in the NBA that shoot 54 percent from mid-range, right? So it's always going to be a better shot almost every time, you know. Unless and and it depends on play by play by play. But in terms of the desired shots that an offense is going for. The league needs to get to a place where a team can win with a dominant mid-range player and that be like the staple of their offense. Now, the ways to do that, do you extend the three-point line out 
a lot farther than it is now? Do you make it worth two and a half points to score from a certain? Like you can get you can get crazy, right? But in terms of the, they need to find ways to bring that back into the game. Do you have an idea of of something you'd like to see? I do. Do you want to get into it now, or do you want to save it for 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 the next pod? I'm let's do, let's do it on the next one. All right, sounds you've been, good. <laughs> you've been listening to Laker Film Room podcast. We will catch you guys next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.